With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to From the Back Tees, a podcast where we tee it up from the back every week. Welcome to the From the Back Tees podcast. I'm Zach Penser. Uh, with me as always, we got Nolan T. Smith. And we got a new guest host with us who will be joining, Brett Wolvert. He'll be taking over for Jerry, who unfortunately had to leave for brighter pastures at Bandon Dunes. And then with us today, we got a big guest. We got PGA Tour agent Nick Biesecker. How's it going, Nick? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So uh, you mentioned before you actually know both Reed and Mark Hubbard, who we actually had on the podcast the first time. So I guess, could you give us like a quick two-minute pitch on how you got into being in the agent game? Yeah, you know, people often ask me, you know, were you a lawyer? How did you end up in the business? That sort of thing. And it really is one of those um, getting to meet people right place, right time. I tell everyone I go back. I was fortunate enough to grow up and, and have a decent junior golf career. I got recruited and played college golf at SMU during a period when Hank Haney decided he wanted to be a college golf coach for about five years. So that was an, was an interesting experience. And uh, I played my first PGA Tour event when I was a junior in college at the Byron Nelson. And then uh, played, at the time, what was a Nike Tour event at, at Sedgefield, where they play the Wyndham Championship now. And I was 21 years old. And Sergio Garcia was making his first start in the U.S. He was, I think he was 17 or 18 at the time. And we were the two amateurs in the field. And I joked that our careers sort of diverged after that. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, I did the mini tour thing for about uh, three years, did three times of Q school after college. I thought it would be very easy. And I, I couldn't be my fraternity social chairman and go out and drink six or eight Coors Lights and get up the next day and compete. I was traveling with guys like Chad Campbell and Vaughn Taylor and Zach Johnson and Ryan Palmer and, you know, guys who went on to have a great deal of success. And uh, they just approached it as a business a little bit differently. And so for me, I ended up, one thing led to another. I had a chance to get in to uh, working on the, the equipment side of the industry. I, I worked for about four years for Bridgestone Golf, overseeing all of their tour operations. So I got a chance to learn the business side of things and work with every agent. And uh, one thing led to another. I, I became a partner in a, an agency called Blue Giraffe Sports in 2007. And I was an equity partner until 2018. 
2015. And we just decided to kind of go separate ways. And I was fortunate enough to, to have some clients that wanted to come with me, including Mark Hubbard, and uh, launched my company, Resolute Sports, at that time. And uh, have kind of grown to, to kind of be a little bit of a boutique business, but it's something that I was fortunate enough that last year of the clients that I work with, I had three that went on the corn Ferry tour and, uh, four guys that I work with that all graduated to the PGA tour. So, um, so it's, it's, it's an interesting ride. There are ups and downs and, you know, certainly everyone knows the movie Jerry Maguire and thinks that's how it always is. And, and it is just no two days are ever alike. That's an incredible success rate you got there. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I, I wish that I could be the one to take all the credit for it. But, uh, you know, my role is, is to be in the background and, and uh, I don't need to be the guy out front. And a lot of times it's just being there to support guys and, and be a sounding board sometimes or, or be a shoulder for them to, to lean on when they're struggling and, and that sort of stuff. When guys are playing well and having success at any level, it's easy, but when you've gone out and you're missing cuts and you're on the road for weeks at a time, it's, it's tough. Yeah. How did you first get like your first chance in working with a player? Um, well, I, I was very fortunate. Uh, as I said, during my time at, at Bridgestone, uh, I worked with some great players that we had. I, it was, I had, I had a chance. I originally signed Brant Snedeker out of college. Uh, there at Bridgestone, I had Fred. I was there when we signed Fred Couples, so I got some really cool experience working with him and and uh, Paula Creamer. And but I really developed a very close relationship with Stuart Appleby. And uh, through the course of things, Stuart had left uh, IMG as his management company in the early two thousands. Had a gentleman who he was working with, and when I kind of told him what I was doing, he he had met the guys from Blue Giraffe, and he essentially said, "All right, well, I'm gonna." I'm going to go with you. And so I was fortunate enough to kind of have someone like that to jumpstart my career. And here we are still together working, you know, almost 14 years later and our careers have both continued to roll on in different paths and you'll be 49 next month. And so, um, so yeah, so that's, that's kind of how I got started with my first player. That's pretty cool. Uh, so SMU, um, Hank Haney, that is a, that is a rare situation there to have Hank Haney as your college golf course, considering he really didn't do it for very long. Like you were saying, that must've been quite a, a little interesting ride there. It, you know, it was, it was really interesting. I mean, for me, I grew up in a small town and went away on a recruiting trip and it was a beautiful early spring day in Dallas and, and SMU has a lot of beautiful co-ed. So it didn't take much convincing on, on that part. And, and at the time, I believe Hank had been the PGA teacher of the year in 93, and I was graduating high school in 94. So I thought, wow, if I want to play the tour, I need to be around a guy like this. And, uh, you know, I mean, Hank, Hank uh, I realized now being older and in my 40s and realized what he was trying to accomplish with us, that as guys were 18, 19, 20 years old, we all thought we knew everything in the world. That's how we are as guys at that age. And... Uh, you know, we probably didn't learn from him as much as we could, but he was, you know, he was hard on us in a way that he, he had to be. And um, we, we ended up having some great players come through during that time that we've, a number of us has gone on to have success and remain in the industry. It was, he coached at the time, Hank Keeney, who went on to win the, the U.S. Amateur in 1998 from the Dallas Golf family of Tripp and Hank and Kelly Keeney. So Hank was a teammate of mine. Uh, Josh Gregory, who went on to coach Augusta State, most notably with Patrick Reed and 
and Henrik Norlander, who are both on the PGA Tour. He coached them at Augusta State to back-to-back national championships and before he returned to coach at SMU for a while. And now he's a very successful instructor on the PGA Tour. And uh, I, two of my other former teammates have gone on to, to be active in the program at SMU coaching. One of them, Jason Enloe, took over after Josh left at SMU. And Chris Parr was the assistant coach. And recently, Jason uh, stepped down to, to take an, a job in the financial world and focus a little bit more on, on his family. And Chris uh, was just named last week officially as the, as the uh, head coach. So it's one of those things that for me, it was a tremendous opportunity. And I, I learned a lot from Hank in, in that experience, not just about golf, but about life. Wow. Yeah. yeah um, so Hank Haney's a pretty divisive character these days. <laughs> was he kind of like that back then? Or, I mean, obviously all I know is how he's perceived in the media. Um, yes. Um, and I think that's part of it. Of, 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 as I said, I get along great with Hank now. And he is very blunt in his approach and his thinking and how he approaches people. So as a, as a 19 and 20 year old kid, you sometimes don't understand that. We didn't understand where he was coming from. And honestly, I think he was way ahead of things in college golf coaching uh, as far as trying to get us to approach it as a business, which it, it obviously is, a, is very much a business these days. And, uh, you know, he was, he was hard on you. He, he would, would give you the, you know, a talking to when you missed a green on the short side of wanting to know what you were thinking. And, he was looking at things statistically on hitting greens and two putts and lag putting and a lot of things that now people are looking at analytically. I think he, he had a great insight into, um, I think, unfortunately he didn't do it, didn't understand how to deal with 18 and 19 year old guys. And we didn't understand how to deal with him. If we had probably had a little bit better communication skills between us, I, there's no telling what we could have done. Yeah, no, I can understand that. I actually, um, I played in college for a couple of years, so I can understand, um, <laughs> You know, I uh, I showed up hungover to maybe one or two uh, qualifiers in my day. So I kind of understand that dichotomy between the, the coach that wants you to take it like a business and, you know, 18, 19-year-old kids who want to that, that's That's right. You know, it was funny. We would do some things where we had putting putting uh, competitions. At the time, I believe we had 12 players that we carried on the roster on our team. Obviously, not everyone was on scholarship. A couple were on academic scholarships. And we would do these break up into teams and do these kind of skills competitions. And at the time, Hank had his nine-hole golf course there north of Dallas, the Hank Haney Golf Ranch, which was the hardest nine-hole golf course you would have ever played. Unfortunately, it's been built over into homes, but it was a nine-hole Pete Dye golf course. Four par threes, four par fours, a par five, par 33. And, you know, we would play it and 18 holes. And there were times where you'd struggle to break 70. And uh, just a tough, tough golf course. But we would do these skills. And, and sometimes it would be, okay, well, the team that wins in this putting competition doesn't have to do anything. The team that finishes second has to run to the back of the driving range and back to the putting green. And the team that loses – has to run the property line. So, you know, this is back in the 90s, and we were wearing Foot Joy Classics. So when <laughs> someone tells you, hey, go run, uh, you know, your spiked Foot Joy Classics at that time were, uh, were not exactly, you know, comfortable New Balance or something on your feet running a, a mile property line or whatever it was. That's, that's pretty rare to see, I'm sure. <laughs> I don't think many golf coaches had their – 
players running for, for <laughs> yeah. golf practice. Especially <laughs> yeah, golfers, too. That's exactly right. So it, it was a great experience. And I look back on it and for all the things, you know, and having played college golf, you understand, I think everyone goes into it with these great expectations. It's going to be this amazing experience. And I think for some players it really is, but it also – it's, it's tough, and sometimes it doesn't live up to the expectations. And you go from the competition of junior golf and loving the game to kind of the forced practice and expectations that it's tough for you to shoulder sometimes, and not everyone does the best job doing it. And I think that's where you have some, some ups and downs, and you see some kids burn out, and you have some that come along, and, and they need the structure, and they have tremendous success from it. Right on. Yes, yeah, so now uh, it's obviously a very different time in the world. How have you been uh, handling things? First of all, is, is the beard a quarantine beard? or is it all year round beard? Uh, Well, I, I've, I've had a beard for several years. I think I can't even remember what year. I just decided I wasn't going to shave one week when I was pheasant hunting in South Dakota, and I came back and I just kept it. And uh, I, I will admit that I have – barely trimmed it through the quarantine I just kind of said well I'm not having to go really meet with anyone or do much in person so uh, I think this might be one of the few times anyone has seen it so did you yeah, it's, grown, it's grown out a little bit thicker but uh, but yeah so you know this time it's it's really a, a unique time in in the world in sports and in golf and uh, I, I was at the players championship and to see how quickly things could turn from we had our, our annual player managers meetings on Tuesday and you know obviously everyone was asking what are we doing this sort of stuff and the tour hey we're on pace we're going to play we're not worried we've been in touch with the World Health Organization we've been in touch with the CDC here's our plan just get guys to minimize contact with spectators no autographs all of this um, I show up at the course on Thursday morning and the, the message is no spectators are going to be allowed in after noon today. We're going to play starting tomorrow with no spectators. And obviously by that afternoon, it was, it was changing. And really, I think a lot of it had to do with what some of the other leagues were doing and, and just how, how quickly some of this stuff was, was happening. And uh, so I was lucky enough. I changed my flight from Friday, Friday, got out of Jacksonville on Thursday night. But uh, you know, it, it really just changed quickly. And right now, everyone has been in such a holding pattern. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens when we come out of this. And hopefully with, with some of the dates that we're looking at, with the tour has announced coming back in June, and uh, hopefully we're able to get back and, and, you know, bring some entertainment at least. And it's, it doesn't diminish what's going on from a health perspective or anything like that. But, you know, we, we need sports. And I think it, it shows how much people miss it. Um, with what we've been watching of reruns and, and that sort of stuff. So sure, yeah. Yeah, I think it's crazy. Motorsport, you know, motorsports is going into to virtual racing and doing what they're doing with NFL draft tonight. People love sports and it's an important part of our life. And this is the first time it's really been taken away from us. Yeah, I agree. I think it's crazy that some people are getting mad at all these people saying we should bring back sports. Like obviously <laughs> number one, we care about the health of people and then assuming that that is all, good, then let's get some golf going because that also helps a lot of people. It does. You know, when you look at it, the industry of golf and how large it really is, when you think about the number of people that this impacts from, you know, we've seen these caddy relief programs that were launched at LA Country Club and Riviera and uh, the Outpost Club did and others across the country, Pinehurst, 
Kiowa, you think about that on the local level. You think about the kid who might come home from college and, and caddy on the weekends or, uh, you know, Evan scholars up to the guys work, like Reed working on the PGA Tour. Uh, every club employs a lot of people. And uh, that revenue goes back into the communities. And you look with the PGA Tour not competing, there's so many charitable dollars from ticket sales and other things that go back into these communities. So it's, it's lost and it's across the board and no one is immune to this. Whether you were the CEO of a corporation or a waiter, it has affected everyone equally. Uh, I was on the phone earlier today with some folks at the, at the Greenbrier discussing some things there from, uh, from the tournament going away. And, you know, it's, it's all part of it. And, and looking at that, there's a massive resort that's shut down. They still have to maintain the golf courses. They have to maintain the hotel. And that takes money, but you're, you're having no revenue coming in. And fortunately, I think, uh, you know, the number of golf courses that remain open is, is a good sign. Uh, I've seen more people now playing golf than than ever. It seems at some of these courses. So I think it's, I think it could be actually very good for for the game of golf when we come out of this. And um, you know, not to say the timing of it is great, but I look at it alone with some of my clients, Cameron Percy on the PGA Tour. He had dealt with some risk problems on the West Coast and it had to miss some events, and had found out just the week prior to the players championship that his doctor had told him, look, you need to take at least two to three weeks off to rest your wrist. So it came at a good time for him. Henrik Norlander was due to have a baby in the, in the week or two after the players championship. So he was going to miss a week or two at minimum. Um, so now he hasn't missed those events. Uh, it's, it's unfortunate for maybe some of the guys further down that were corn Ferry graduates that haven't gotten into as many events and things like that, but the tour's trying to work around it and everyone's in the same boat. Yeah. What do you think about, it seems like we kind of have our first sight of what might be happening here soon in the potential, I don't know what you want to call it, the match 2.0 coming up with uh, <laughs> Tiger, Phil, Brady, and Manning. What do you think that's, a, I mean, obviously I think that's a good sign. Um, and I think it's been rumored that it'll be in Florida, which we all know that the uh, governor down there has been pretty open to trying to get sports back and going because they know it's a you know big cog in the economy and something that'll probably you know help the morale more than anything else. Have you have you seen the whisperings of that going on? Yeah, I mean, obviously there were some announcements today. You've seen some stuff where some of the players shared things on social media with Phil Mickelson and Tiger and and others looking at that, having the announcement it would be coming on TNT sometime in the next month. Um, all of those things, and I think it, I think it's tremendous. And the fact that that golf can engage with you know Hall of Fame football players and and bring you know two of the greatest golfers, obviously of all. time, time together with two of the greatest quarterbacks and and you know Peyton Manning is a is a part owner and an investor in Sweetens Cove Golf Club in Tennessee so anyone that's an architecture buff understands that he's a member at the honor so he obviously is very passionate about the game so I think it will be a really really interesting experience and, and be much greater than what the initial match was with just Phil and Tiger you know I think there were a lot of people that walked away with that maybe with a you know, kind of an empty feeling, but hopefully we get a little bit more smack talk here and a little bit more interaction between everyone. So I think it could be really cool. I don't know anyone that wouldn't watch it. Brady and Phil seem pretty outspoken over Twitter so far. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. I hope it, yeah. hope it continues. And I hope like, 
I mean, this might be a sign for the future that during the off season, maybe we'll see more of these these uh, matches set up to keep the interest in golf, maybe. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I think that when you look at the timing of all this, everyone is so used to seeing football or hockey or baseball. Every other sport has a clear defined off season. And we've gotten into it now where with the wraparound seasons on the PGA Tour and on the European Tour, we never are lacking for golf. We're never lacking to see the stars that we want to see. You can you can find it in, you know, November, December, or January when it's cold and everyone's stuck at home, they can find golf to watch. It, you know, you go back 20-plus years ago, and the only thing that you got was after the Tour Championship was the Skins game. You might get to stay up late at night and watch the, the events from Australia. But, you know, having this break, having it happen at a, a time of the Masters where Tiger was coming in to defend and people were such anticipating it, I think that's part of the reason there might be such a, a hunger for it coming out of it. And with so many people working remotely and golf courses being one of the few activities that you can do, you can't go to your gym and do CrossFit anymore. You can't go – and take your kids for a travel baseball game and some of this stuff. I think that people are maybe rediscovering it a little bit. And I see more people out playing with their kids and some of these things. So it's, it's a lot going on. And I think something like the match coming at this time when people are, are thirsty for sports and, uh, and we're missing golf for the first time, it, it could be great. I mean, I, I can only imagine what the ratings numbers might be like. Yeah, that, it's, a, it's a rare opportunity, that's for sure. Yeah, and I, and I know they haven't announced a golf course or anything like that, but uh, talking about being in Florida, and you know, potentially, let's let's look at it if, if Michael Jordan hosted his course at Grove 23. I mean, think about that and what that brings and, you know, all of, of the parts that play into that. And I'm sure that with the number of other players living in South Florida, um, you might see a Ricky Fowler or a Justin Thomas out there as a spectator and and staying obviously in a, a safe social distance, but you might get some of that. Yeah, th- those guys. Have are you been, be have you been watching any of that uh, MJ documentary? Uh, I think everyone has to. It's uh, it's something that how can you? It, it doesn't matter what generation you are. Everyone loves Jordan. I think everyone can identify with him in some way. Um, whether you watched him play in college when he started his career or at the end of his career. And he's, you know, he's someone just like Tiger that truly shaped the direction of the NBA. Uh, same way that Tiger shaped the, the change in the tour. So, um, so it's, it's hard not for anyone to be inspired by that or watch it. Yeah, absolutely. Now, speaking of Tiger, got to ask this question. You were the Bridgestone tour manager. Yes. And everyone knows that Bridgestone made Nike's ball for pretty much as long as Tiger was playing it. Any interactions with Tiger? You know, it's interesting. At that time, uh, I think there were only two people in the world that truly knew what the golf ball was that Tiger was playing. There was a gentleman named Rock Ishii, who is a ball engineer. Yeah. Now, now Rock is with, with Callaway. Uh, he was a, a Japanese ball engineer with Bridgestone. And when Nike got into the business – they hired Rock uh, away with a couple of other Bridgestone uh, ball engineers. And, uh, and so they worked exclusively with, uh, with Nike and on the manufacturing side with Bridgestone out of Japan. We had no interaction at the time oh. of anything. Uh, but, you know, it was really interesting because at that time, 
we had, oh gosh, we had Shigeki Mariyama. We had Nick Price still playing and Tom Watson was playing the golf ball and um, Justin Leonard played the golf ball at that time and Fred Couples and Stuart Appleby. And, and I joined the company when, when it was still branded as Precept and we were coming out of the success of the, the Lady Precept ball. And it was during the time that Bridgestone changed its branding from Precept to Bridgestone Golf in North America. And I remember going to Ireland to the World Golf Championship event in south of Dublin to do ball testing with Stuart Appleby uh, because we were in, in a position, it was, we were coming down to the, to the line of what are we going to do in getting the initial B330 golf ball off the ground and running. And, you know, timing-wise, he was going back to Australia. He was playing in South Africa, I believe, uh, before Australia. And it was kind of going to be, when are these golf balls going to be available in a prototype phase? And when can you go and test? And it was a, a, a touch and go of where are you going in the world to do ball testing? So, um, so there was a, lo a lot of really cool stuff. And people don't think about it. We had, you know, different golf balls because of being a smaller company and having a unique staff. You know, Stuart Appleby had his golf balls all with his logo on them. Nick Price played double zeros that had Nick on the side. Shigeki Mariyama played tour stage golf balls that were unique from, from Japan. And, uh, you know, everyone had custom gloves that were cut to match their hand. And they may have a different cuff on them and a different Velcro, Velcro enclosure. And um, the only way you knew the difference was, you know, with the initials on the inside on a special tag for each of them. And you think about here's this huge company we would sometimes be looking at it and the inventory would come in and we'd be back in what we called our tour cage where we kept all the tour product and it'd be like okay well we only have six dozen of uh, shigeki's balls left when are these coming from japan or we only have a dozen of these gloves left and uh so it was a really it was a unique experience because i never forget one thing was i always thought when i was playing professionally and in college and i was sponsored by precept when i when i turned professional um, and I always thought, look, they don't really care. They, it's a big company. All these golf clubs they give away, they don't care about it. And I thought about it from when I would Monday qualify for events or got to play in, in Nike Tour or Web.com events, and I'm like, I don't understand why they can't just give me a driver or give me this, give me that. And when I went to work, I realized exactly how much inventory we pushed through. And I remember thinking, wow, this kid from this university is asking for another three. What the hell happened to the other one he had? You know, why does he want it with a different shaft? And certainly things have changed now with the, the amount of equipment that's given away. But it was a unique experience and a great learning experience for me. Yeah. yeah now just to follow up, one question I had written down is I know you still work intimately with players, obviously, but kind of what made you leave that and work and move on to the, the agent side of it? Because. I'm not, you know, I can't speak for the other two, but I mean, that would be a dream for me personally, you know, working so intimately with tour players. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I was very fortunate, as I said, to get to know some of these guys. And, and I think I, I developed great relationships with them. One, because I didn't put them on a pedestal. I realized they were normal guys. Yeah. Um, I'm the first to admit I'm a club for I love golf clubs. I love yeah. working on clubs. You know, I was in my basement earlier, a buddy of mine, I had a couple of wedges for him. He's like, can you do the loft and lies on these and, and get them back to me? You know, I love all that stuff. So it was great. And it was fun at the time because when I started was right when Bridgestone was launching its first tour van. So being part of that and having that access and as we were growing the club line in, in the U.S., it was a lot of fun. But, um, you know, I go back to, to what I said. I made every mistake when I tried to play as a professional. And I didn't have someone providing guidance. Now, 
the business has changed in so many ways that more kids when they come out of college are looking for a management group or looking for someone to help provide guidance. And the path is, is clear of you're going to play McKinsey Tour, Latin America, China, hopefully get to the Corn Ferry, on to the PGA Tour, that at that time it was organized gambling. We were playing the Hooters Tour, the Teardrop Tour, mm-hmm. you know, Adams Pro Tour, whatever you could play. And you were just waiting around until Q School. And, you know, I didn't really understand how to approach it as a business. So for me, um, being able to take the experience I had learning on the, man, on the equipment side and really being on the sponsor side and being able to look at it from a player's perspective and what I had missed, uh, being able to, to take that and have the chance to come in and work and have ownership in a company. I, uh, to be honest, I wasn't Japanese, so I was never going to take on a, a leadership role at Bridgestone at that time. And, uh, you know, so it was kind of, kind of a time for me. And you see some guys that move around working for different equipment companies over the years, but that really wasn't uh, where I wanted to hang my hat for the next 20 years. And I wanted to go and have something that I could own and be part of and, and uh, continue that intimate work with players just in a different manner. Yeah. One thing I know we've debated on the show a bunch, and I feel like you are the best person to answer this question. <laughs> if you were to take, we'll say Mark Hubbard, because you must know his mm-hmm. game pretty well, and yes. just the ball he's using now, or you replace it with a ball you get from Walmart, how many shots does he lose on average? Uh, you know, it's, it's how much pra- it goes into the whole thing of how much practice does he get to have? What adjustments? Assuming no practice. To take you know, assuming, gosh, I, I mean, honestly, you've got to look at it that if you're just pulling, you know, and, and what you're going to buy at Walmart, depending on the brand, that sort of thing. Let's just say he's going to a Serlin, you know, three-piece golf ball. He's going to struggle with distance controls and struggle with some of these pitch shots. I would sit and say that, you know, a tour player in that position, it could be anywhere from one to five shots. You know, they may pick up something that they hit some drives that are a little bit longer. They may um have some things where they hit a pitch shot that intentionally runs out and it's a little easier than having to judge the spin but you know i think about really those those shots where someone like mark is so good around the green or with a wedge and just the distance control that those guys are able to dial things in with i think that's where you would see the biggest difference and um i remember you know when i played the byron nelson and i was a 20 year old i played one of the the, the two rounds i played i didn't embarrass myself i shot 75 77 or 77, 75, but I played with Joe Durant. I remember the second day I'm keeping his score and he shoots 65 and it was the easiest 65 I'd ever seen. You know, he made, hit it close a few times, made those putts, made some 12 footers, made a couple of 20 footers. And next thing you know, he shoots five under. So, um, so, you know, it's, it's just how it is with those guys. They're all so good and so dialed in with different things and, and with where the equipment is, everyone knows specifically what they're doing on that side. So, so it'd make a difference. I can't say, I can't speak and say, Hey, it's going to, going to cost him five shots, but I could see it, it making, making a significant difference for guys. Sounds like um, for all those tour players out there listening right now that you got some good sabotage right here. Just throw some Kirkland signatures into your buddy's bag, but like, you know, write a little Titleist logo right on top of that. And well, didn't Bridgestone make the, the Kirkland signature for a little bit. I think. Uh, I, I, I'm not going to go on the record here and say who made it. You know, there, there's speculation. Uh, some groups have looked at different things. And I, I saw some Kirkland balls when I was in, uh, in, in Costco the other week. But, 
Uh, I don't think it's the same as the original ball that came out. My understanding, and I think one of the most widespread rumors, is that they were potentially uh, overrun tailor-made balls, that they bought up excess tailor-made inventory and branded as Kirkland, the original ball that, you know, that had such success. Mm-hmm. And, and that was, I think, potentially some of the tour preferred balls as they ran into the, the TP5 and TP5X initially um, a couple of years ago. So who knows? You know, it's one of those – unicorns out there that we may never know mm-hmm. <laughs> that's good stuff um i got a question for you so an smu alum what are some who are some of the notable other alums besides yourself that you think uh got some really good game i i obviously i think there's one that we all can think of right now uh, is there is there some other guys we should know of though well you know it's funny um people don't realize this and it's, it's an amazing statistic, actually. SMU had four U.S. Amateur champions within the last uh, just over 22 years now. You had Hank Keeney won it. We had Colt Nost win it, Kelly Craft, and Bryson DeChambeau. So when you look at that, that's amazing in its own right. So um, to have, you know, guys who – didn't all play on the team together and those types of things to kind of win in different generations and for them all to continue to go on. And obviously Hank had, had, you know, probably didn't see the success that he had hoped in professional golf. He did make it to the PGA tour. We just had Colt retire and, and go into to broadcasting and, and podcast himself. <laughs> um, but to see Kelly, to see what Bryson has done. I mean, it's amazing. You go back to Payne Stewart being one of the, the early guys and, and what he did. And um, so it's, it's really, it's, we have a great golf history. We're most well known for the death penalty and losing all of our sports because of, of football. Hey, someone had to, had to dive on that <laughs> grenade with the NCAA for, uh, for, so the other schools could benefit and keep paying players. But uh, you know, we, we, we had some great success over the years and uh you know and then you add Harry Higgs who is a rookie on the PGA Tour and obviously you know a great personality and the success that he's had that you know I tell everyone within just within less than a year he went from PGA Tour Latino America to the Corn Ferry Tour to the PGA Tour and having a runner-up finish in Bermuda in less than less than a year so he's there there's another young player um, on the, the Corn Ferry Tour, Austin Smotherman, who's a great, you know, hugely talented young player in his second season out there after playing in Latin America. Um, you know, and you're going to continue to see some other good players come out of there. Uh, Mac Meisner, who's on the team, who's a, who will be coming back as a senior. Uh, Noah Goodwin, who, who has played in the U.S. Open, a former top junior golfer who will be a senior so we had a nice program making a nice run and and we'll see what happens here in the future but we've had some some great players come through hello it is ryan and i was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com i looked over the person sitting next to me and you know what they were doing they were also playing chumba casino coincidence i think not everybody's loving having fun with it chumba casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Yep. No surprise, man. That golf is just so deep wherever you look, I feel like. And like, like a, 
Harry Higgs, we want to tell the Harry Higgs story to the world. So if you want to put a good word in for us, we want to mind that at all. Uh, yeah. But, you, know. you think you think Bryson DeChambeau, you think he's going to be the first one to hit 400-yard drives? That dude's – um, <laughs> I was so disappointed. You know, I, I am surprised that the net I saw in his driveway with some of this stuff is still holding up with the excess 200 ball speed. Uh, hey, I mean, we, we've seen 400 yards on tour in some freakish conditions, but, uh, you know, people look at it and, and Bryson is approaching things in a very methodical way of, of you know, different from other guys. But very yes, so methodical. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And, and so he's approaching things from a scientific standpoint, but you have all of these guys that are such great athletes. And when you look at the distance debate around the tour, um, look, you know, Nick Faldo's a big guy, but he didn't hit it very far when he played on tour. And really, everyone has gotten longer. You know, when you look at some of the longest hitters, they're not, you know, Justin Thomas, you know, is he's lanky, but he's got speed and he plays the game in an athletic manner. But you look, five foot eight, right? <laughs> exactly. Uh, no, he's a little taller than that. But, yeah. <laughs> but you know, you look at a Brooks Kepka. If Tiger and, – and that's where I think the true Tiger effect comes in, that now what is happening is you have generations. I remember when I was growing up and I quit playing football and I quit playing baseball to focus on golf, people actually like, what the hell are you doing? And now everyone has grown up. Kids now have all seen Tiger the last 20-plus years having success. And parents have, you know, pushed their kids into golf that maybe – they would have played football. You know, Brooks Kepka's father was a, a college baseball player and a pitcher. You look at him. I mean, he makes no bones about it that he's an athlete. and He could have played football, could have played baseball, could have been out there jacking home runs and spring training. You know, Dustin Johnson was a hell of a basketball player. So you go down the list and you look at some of the things. Gary Woodland, you go and you look, and we've got better athletes across the board. And anytime you step on the range, you go and you just look at the physical size of these guys and there's better technology in the golf swing and, and understanding what the club's doing. The, the clubs, you know, the driver now is, is designed to, you know, hit it high and hit it hard. Um, so, yeah. So, I mean, the idea of guys hitting at 400, uh, it, it won't surprise me when it happens. Uh, will it be Bryson? Maybe. Who knows? I mean, there's some of these kids out there that hit it so long. I remember Matt Wolf. I go back to – I still – I'm lucky enough. I'm a reinstated amateur. I get to play a good bit of, of mid-am golf. And uh, let's see, I guess this would have been almost three years ago. Matt Wolf was a senior in high school. Uh, yeah, it would have been three years ago, uh, the end of March. And I get paired up with Matt Wolf playing at the Azalea at the Country Club of Charleston. And I don't hit it short. I mean, I've always been a, a long hitter. And uh, – on the first hole, I hit driver. This kid's got three wood. I'm like, what the hell is he doing? He hits it past my drive. On the next hole, he, uh, I hit three wood off this par 40. He pulls his iron out and hits it past my three wood. And I had looked up. I knew, you know, what a great junior player he was. And I just look and I go, what, what is that? And he goes, oh, it's, you know, three iron, just a good 280 club. And, and, and I remember, you know, I got to play with him for two days and some of these drives he was hitting and things like that. And, I'll never forget on the 10th hole there at the Country Club of Charleston, it's this beautiful little, you know, it's a Seth Rayner designed course, held the U.S. Women's Open. 10th hole's a, a dogleg par four. It's, you know, anywhere from a hybrid mid-iron to a three-wood and a wedge. 
and he's turned his three iron around the corner and has about 125 yards. And I look, and we're sharing a cart, and I see he's got this wedge, and he's swinging at it so hard. And I go, what are you doing? It was a lob wedge. And I, and I remember telling him when we got finished and we're sitting in there having lunch, and I'm telling these other mid-am guys I'm playing with about this because everyone had seen his swing, and they're like, what's up with that? And, uh, you know, he was so polite, such a nice kid, and we had a great time. But I remember telling him, look, you, you've just got to get these wedges figured out. Whatever you're doing, don't change it. But when you figure out what you're doing, your speed with, you know, you can't hit the same club from 120 that you're going to hit from 40 yards. You're going to have to figure out some of this with your wedges. And, you know, he went to college and, and didn't have the, the breakout rookie year of, or, of what people would have thought as a freshman. And then, you know, what he did as a sophomore and coming straight out on the PGA Tour and winning, it's, it shows how good these guys are. Yeah. I know, uh, Brett, I know you had a question on the mid-am. Oh, yeah. So um, I recently turned 25 years old. All right. And, um, yeah, so thinking about getting into the mid-am game. Um, now, I know you won the Virginia State mid-am back-to-back years. Was that 2009? Yeah. Uh, I think I won it in 08, 09, and 11. So three oh, out of four okay. years, I had a chance to win, yeah. Oh, wow, good for you. Okay. Um, difference between, you know, playing in, you know, AMs, you know, where you got, you know, all the best college players and, you know, probably guys that are going to play on the PGA Tour and the mid-am. Like, because uh, you've had some pretty good success, and I, I assume you're still playing in mid-am events? Yeah, you know, it's, it's funny. I mean, unfortunately, there have been some events that have been canceled. Uh, the Azalea was canceled. I normally go up to Garden City Golf Club in New York and play the Travis in May. It's been canceled. Uh, a couple of others, and I think that's one of the beautiful things about mid-am golf is all of us work, even if, you know, at 25 years old, you have day-to-day responsibilities, and not everyone gets to go out and, and grind for hours. You know, mm-hmm. people have – you know, children and wives and jobs and different things that, um, you know, that take away from it. But, you know, the guys who can play, I mean, there are a lot of guys who are reinstated uh, professionals who play professionally for a year or two or three or four years. And you look at those guys and you look at someone like Stuart Hagestad, who's had success at the Masters and had success in the U.S. Open. Um, Matt Parziali, who won the U.S. Mid-Am and, and was able to go and make the cut in, in a U.S. Open and that sort of thing. There are a lot of guys who are, who are great players. And, you know, we, we sometimes figure it out a little bit more how to actually play golf as we get older than we did yeah. when we were younger and maybe were in better physical shape. I mean, for me, uh, when I worked at Bridgestone, it, I didn't really enjoy playing golf for a while. I would play when I went to the British Open. I would take someone. We'd go the week before, play a lot of golf. But that was it. And I've had – two shoulder surgeries, one on each shoulder. And that's really what kind of made me decide I wanted to get back into playing golf. And, and I've developed so many great friendships and relationships of guys that I see. It may only be once or twice a year, depending on the tournament or what it is. And, and uh, you know, you get to go play some great golf courses because of of this stuff. And so it's, it's a lot of fun. And, And whether you're competing at the state level and you get to interact with the guys at that level or, up to some of these great national events at places, you know, the, the Thomas at, at LA country club, you have, you know, everyone's known the Coleman at Seminole, you have the Crump cup at Pine Valley and, you know, they're great players. Um, and then, you know, I'm fortunate enough, I'm a member of a club 
Sunny Hanna Country Club in Johnstown, Pennsylvania. Um, and it's a it's great Tillinghast golf course. And the Sunny Hanna Amateur is probably one of the two most elite amateur events in the country. The Sunny Hanna, it's in, it falls usually around the week of the U.S. Open. But you go through and you look at past winners and guys that, you know, I think they always give a T-shirt away to players. And last year's it was showing past participants who had – uh, I believe one majors or something. And it was just cool. amazing. So you look at it of Tiger, Jason Day, Ricky Fowler won it back to back. You know, you go down the list of these guys who have, have won it. Um, and there are photos of Nicholas playing and Palmer playing and all of these guys. And, and I'm, and I, I think last year there were only three of us that were mid ams playing. And I love going and playing and getting the chance to play beside some of these college kids because from my side, from a business perspective, I'm getting to evaluate a game and they're looking at me going, well, God, this guy actually can play the game. So it, it opens some doors in that perspective, but it, it's, it's fun. I love, I would, in a lot of ways, I would rather play against the college kids. I feel like it makes me play at a higher game. And, yeah. um, you know, it's, and, and there is, as you know, there's a big difference between, teeing it up on Saturday morning at your home course with your buddies and shooting even par and taking your game on the road and putting the tee in the ground, having to play by the rules, make every putt and posting a score that everyone's going to see what you do. And, you know, everyone's a little bit different. I mean, I think for me, I'm, I'm geared to the mindset I play better in tournament conditions than I do just out messing around. I think I, I don't know that I'm ADD, but my attention span on the golf course seem to have gotten shorter and shorter the longer the, the older I get so as we cross that three hour threshold in a round of golf I start going what the hell am I doing I got to get out of here I want to go do something else you know I'm, why am I waiting on this group can we hit into them so um so yeah so I, I find myself I'm I'm certainly a lot more patient when I play amateur golf really? okay that's yeah because I'm just getting to the point now where I'm not playing you know five six days a week like I could when I was in college and I got to learn how to play good golf, <laughs> you know, playing, you know, once or twice a month. Well, it's, you know, it's funny. I, I'll tell a story about that. I remember 2011 U.S. Mid-Am. I qualified for the U.S. Mid-Am. Uh, it was at Shadowhawk in Houston that year. I end up um, qualifying for match play. I believe it was my third round match. I paired up against Nathan Smith, who at the time had won. I mean, I can't even remember how many U.S. Mid-Ams Nathan's won at this point. But, but, you know, we were friends, and his dad's caddying for him, and his mom's out there watching. And this is in late September, I believe, that year. And, you know, Nathan had played the U.S. Amateur. He had played a um, Walker Cup. He had played you know, some other stuff and then rolls right into the, to the mid-am. And I remember telling, you know, his mom is saying something about how much golf he's played. I said, well, my practice round was the first round of golf I had played in four weeks. You know, I've been running around and traveling to tournaments and doing this, this, and this and working with clients. And I haven't had a chance to play in practice and mine was showing up here. So it's kind of fun. And you know, to make it to the third round and do that, I felt proud of myself. And, Absolutely. you know, I think I lost two and one to Nathan, you know, big deal. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, I think that's what's great about it is that we can all show up and compete. And especially with some of these being match play, you never know what's going to happen. While we're still on uh, your playing career topic, what about, you got to tell us about your experience at the Byron Nelson. 
Oh gosh. Um, well, I, I will go hey, back. Oh, you shot two uh, rounds in the seventies. I did. You know, <laughs> I, I'll go back and I, I'll tell a couple of things about it. Um, I was benched from playing at the NCAA regionals that week by Haynes. So oh, I had God. plans to be in Dallas. There's a I story behind up. that too. Yes. Well, I had probably been a, a, a jerk at, at our conference tournament, I know I had, and we had butted heads as we benched me. Um, but I had plans. I was still going to be in Dallas, so I signed up for the Monday qualifier. And at that time, it was four spots, one golf course. We had 208 guys in in the qualifier. I'm in one of the last groups of the afternoon, and we're playing in a foursome. At the time, you could ride in carts in these qualifiers. On the very first hole, guy in my group tops it. He'll tops it left out of bounds into a yard he shot i have no idea like 56 or something on the front nine and i'm thinking please to god he's going to quit after the front he makes an 11 on the 10th hole which was a par five makes i believe like an eight or nine on the 11th hole and finally he hits the ball out of bounds on the 12th hole and the guys in the group are like look nick's 400 par he has a chance to qualify just quit go in and so I qualified I show up on Tuesday morning I see Payne Stewart on the range and he looks at me he goes Nick what the hell are you doing here and so it was just kind of a funny thing and I got a chance to play a practice round with Tim here and and at the time Tim had had uh, I won a little bit of money I think in our game that day between the guys and, but I remember Tim going man I can't wait until I get on the champions tour and I can put my fat ass in a cart and smoke some cigarettes <laughs> And so, you know, I've kidded him about that. We were together walking at Pebble Beach this year in a practice round with Henrik Norlander and Tim and George McNeil. And I, and I said, Tim, you know, I said, I'm not sure if you remember this exactly. And I had told it to him before, but I said, yep, now that you're going to the Champions Tour next week, I expect a little bit of that. So it was a, it was a great experience, you know. It was I, – I don't know that I've ever been as nervous as I was because at that time the Byron Nelson was what – the Phoenix Open is now as far as being the party atmosphere in the 17th hole and there was a big hill behind the 17th hole there at TPC Las Colinas that it, it you were known and players and caddies knew that there were you know it was the place where the women in Dallas were walking around in their mini skirts and their heels and we'll just say that a lot of them a lot of them that sat there you know along the, the walk path that you had to walk up the hill were sitting there without their undergarments in many skirts. And it was, it was known, you were known to look for that. Allegedly. So, uh, Allegedly. So, a little yeah, something. you know, I mean, it was, it was one of those things. We had a little something down at Oregon State University that was deemed Ho Hill. <laughs> I've heard of it. <laughs> okay. It's made the rounds. Sticking <laughs> wow. with uh, competitive golf. You may not know. You probably do because it's pretty big news in the world these days. I am personally planning to attend a mini tour event. Future mini tour legend you're speaking to here. All uh, right. Will, will I do well? No. Will I have <laughs> read on the bag? Yes. Will I come dead last? 100%. Uh, the content wow. will be created. Gonna be is great. this going to be live streamed or this this might surpass the match actually yeah. that's why i'm yeah, going to be streaming okay you know okay if reed's there what kind of look at that amazing content i'll just be <laughs> me shanking it with him like yelling at me if you want oh, to, absolutely to convince me or someone in my spot to hire you as my agent what would be your pitch <laughs> 
Oh, my pitch? Gosh. Well, you know, I tell people I don't really have a pitch. I'm not a I'm not a used car salesman. I am what I am. I, I, I try not to promise anything to anyone, but I'll work my ass off for you. And and uh, that that's kind of my sales pitch. But I, I'd have to go out there and, and see and, and look and see what the upside was here and, you know, where the where the development was going to be in, in the process of, of my time and looking at things two or three years down the road to see where the upside may be. There. Oh, two or three down, down, two or three years down the road, there's no upside. <laughs> Well, the upside is you have a lot of room for improvement. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, unfortunately, unfortunately, I think by that time, you know, hopefully Hubs is back competing. And, you know, I think probably carrying his bag might be a little bit more lucrative for Reed than, than coming out with you. Oh, no. Reed's committed to taking my bag. It's going to be during the off season. Oh, okay. Well, oh, you know, that'll, be- that'll give him something to do. Yeah, no, I hope he's not going to leave Hubs to c- come uh, <laughs> for me. For hey, Reed's a good ball. guy. He might do that. <laughs> Never know. I got um, some good shirts. Yeah, that's got to be it. your pitch, you know, at least from what I would think, is that you've done, you know, a lot of what these potential clients, players are going to be doing future you know throughout their life or you've been in those spots that they've been in I feel like that's got to be you know a somewhat unique perspective in the industry it is you know um there there are a handful of us that you know play played college golf some that have played professionally but the industry as a whole is you know it's different from other sports you know you look at the NFL draft tonight an agent is going to sit there and obviously they've been talking to teams and they're going to negotiate that team contract, but they're not really involved day to day in the practice or in the logistics of travel and, and all of the things that go into it for those players. You look, the number of NFL guys who end up with corporate endorsements or anything along those lines is very small uh, compared to golf. And so for us, yeah, it's, it's really taken a a hands-on approach and, I have to, to pick and choose. And when it comes to recruiting kids out of college, you know, I look at it somewhere like in Oklahoma State. You have an agency that represents Ricky Fowler, that that same agency, Ricky's agent was the recruiter for that agency who recruited Ricky. The coach at Oklahoma State was managed by that same group. You know, so you, you look at these things and I go, it's, look, like I said, Matt Wolf, I'm friends with Matt, but it would have been a waste of my time to try to recruit him. And you, you end up with developing different relationships with coaches and players and what everyone's looking for is sometimes a little bit different. And, uh, and it's out there, you know, it's, it's no different than being recruited and to, to play in college or anything like that. You're going all around and you're evaluating, you're trying to build relationships and, and not everyone pans out and, and, you know, it's, you're, you're betting on horses and sometimes you choose yours and you say, this is the guy I want. And, uh, and you may not be able to predict it, but others, you know, you look last year at, at Colin Morikawa and Wolf and Hovland, those were expected. They were layups to, to think that they were going to get to the PGA Tour. Did you think that they would all win as quickly as they did? Maybe not. But you knew they would get there eventually. And so it's really interesting to say who's going to have the greatest career of those. And it seems every week you turn around and Colin Morikawa was the top, at the top of the leaderboard every week for a long time. Yeah, young talent is uh, 100%, you know, making their presence known on the PGA Tour, that's for sure. 
Uh, and I have one final question for you. Now, you said that you had a former teammate that uh, was a coach at Augusta State, Patrick Reed. Yes, yes, uh, Josh um, Gregory. Yeah. How much money did Patrick Reed steal from him? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it, it, it's not something that I know anything about that. We all know that there are allegations out there. Um, but, you know, and Hubs would tell you this because he said, you know, living in Houston, he sees Patrick there some. and and you always see different sides of people. And certainly um, he's a polarizing figure in some of his behavior. Patrick's always been a very nice guy. When I've been around, my teammate Josh Gregory still works as one of Patrick's instructors and works with him to this day. It's, you know, <laughs> I like Patrick personally myself. Yeah, no, it wasn't was the most hey, serious questions I've you know, No, but I think, it's, I think it's actually great. Golf needs a villain sometimes. Yeah, and, I and, and he And he embraces that role. So, it, you know, any publicity is good publicity, and he brings that to the tour. So there are plenty of nice guys that everyone knows. And, you know, you look at Webb Simpson, and, and he's had an amazing career. And I hate to say it, um, you know, Webb, as great a player as he is, is less identifiable to a lot of, of golf fans than Patrick Reed because he's the villain. You know, you've, you've got – I mean, Webb's one of the nicest guys in the world. But, you know, people recognize Patrick and want to go watch him because they want to cheer against him or they, they want to see, is he going to do something that people are going to question? Um, and his story's unique and it's different and it's been documented. But it's – you know, it's, it's kind of cool, and that's what makes the game great. We've got so many different personalities out there. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I agreed. We had uh, Paul Tesori, Webb's caddy, actually, on the podcast and have heard, you know, nothing but the best about Webb. He's a great guy. So is Paul. Well, um, and that's the thing. You know, people don't realize how good of a player Paul is. You know, I mean, he's largely Webb's instructor now, but – Paul played the PGA Tour, you know. He was was an All-American at Florida, and he was there, I believe, with DeMarco and um, and Brian Gay and some other guys that played the Tour, Pat Bates. And, and um, I mean, he was on an amazing University of Florida program. And so when you look at that and you think about it, you look at Reed and his background of playing at UCF and being a great player. And that's where I think part of it is a lot of guys who are caddies now, uh, it's a career, and they treat it as such. And, you know, the idea that people have of, of a guy carrying the bag that he's out partying every night and, you know, showing up drunk in the morning, that's far from the, far from the story. There's too much money for these guys to make. And what other job conceivably can you go out and, and work 30 weeks a year and those 30 weeks, you know, you may have Monday off, you may have Wednesday off if you're not in a pro am and you're, you're outside and yeah, Tuesday is going to be a grind and, you're going to have to deal with some rain and some other stuff. And you might deal with some pros who are, you know, a little harder on you than others, but it's, you can also make a very good living as a caddy doing that. And that's why it's become a business. And I look at it, Reed, um, you know, and I'm not, I'm not sitting here trying to, to fluff him up and give him a big ego or anything, but I look at, at Mark Hubbard and I think that the two of them joining up at the start of last year, it was something that that was, was definitely, um, a component that I think has been part of Hub's success, you know, winning early on the Corn Ferry Tour and having a great season and transitioning right to the PGA Tour and, you know, having some top tens, finishing runner-up in Houston and having a guy who 
is mature like Reed and, you know, that he knows is a good player and can potentially envision some of the shots he's trying to hit and things like that. It's, it's been a, a, a great thing for both of them, I think. Yeah, a hundred percent agree there. Well, Nick, um, we're, uh, nearing the end here. I would, uh, All right. before we get into our trivia question, which I don't know if you've listened or anything, but we uh, like to do a little yeah. trivia at the end and we'll, 100% get your participation in it. Um, if you would like to, you know, the, the stage is yours here. If you want to plug anything, uh, take 30 seconds, take 10 minutes, whatever you want. Um, you got somewhere we can reach you. Other people can reach out to you. Uh, go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. You know, my company, Resolute Sports, um, you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, try to follow, see what the guys are doing. Uh, as I said, I, I've got some great players that I'm, I'm very lucky to work with from, uh, from Harry Higgs and Hubs to Cam Percy, Henrik Norlander, Stuart Appleby, Paul Goidos down to, um, you know, I've got some great young players that are coming along just out of college. And unfortunately things are stalled out for them on the, you know, getting the year started in Latin America or, or things like that, but some guys like an Austin Squires, who was an All-American out of Cincinnati, or um, uh, Billy Tom Sargent, who came out of Western Kentucky. Some of these guys are maybe a little bit lesser known, but they are going to be great players that you will see in the future. And and I've been lucky enough on the women's side. Uh, and, I, and I encourage people, you know, I think it's, it's interesting because women's golf is so much bigger in Asia than it's here domestically. But, um, you know, as a guy, one, there are way more attractive girls playing golf now than there were when I was growing up. Um, girls that would have played tennis or swam or uh, been a cheerleader or a gymnast. Hey, they're, they're playing golf, you know, look at a, a Sierra Brooks or someone like that. And, and you see it. And I was fortunate enough to work with Lexi Thompson with my prior agency. And from the time she turned professional, but, you know, I've got some girls, Alana Uriel and Cheyenne Knight on the on the LPGA Tour. That, yeah, I noticed you, you guys know. have a lot of LPGA Tour. Yeah, yeah. I've, yeah, so it's been good. So having some girls like that. But, you know, I encourage anyone that loves golf to get out and go watch these girls because the way they play the game is absolutely amazing. Because you may sit and go, oh, well, I don't want to watch someone hit a five iron from, from 160 yards. Well, try hitting that five iron from 160 yards and still having to cover a bunker and stop it on the green, or you can't do that. You have to play, you know, different angles and do different things. It's really impressive. Um, and a lot of these girls are getting better and better as far as athletes go of hitting it longer or things like that. But it's amazing. I mean, it really is. And, and you know, it's, it's something that I encourage everyone to get out and watch. But, um, you know, as, as far as things go, I, I'm lucky to have great clients that trust me to work with them and and you know follow us on instagram or twitter and i'll try to keep up whatever content you can find out there on that side of things and uh you know reach out if there's ever a question i i certainly i'm always approachable and anyone that that messages through through twitter or instagram i'm going to try to follow up and and uh, always be available that's great that's great stuff so guys uh bear with me here this is my first okay time knocking off the trivia dust here we've moved off canadian trivia because we've completely ran out of quality canadian questions that aren't canada just is a great country zach but i don't know i guess we're just running dry or we've done a too many podcasts right well <laughs> I, I mean I, i'm gonna sit here and tell you that i'm finally to i think the last you know through the quarantine here i think i'm on the last 
two episodes of uh, the the final season of Letter Kenny that's out. So, uh, you know, so so I I I brushed up on my Canadian there over over the quarantine. Okay, well, uh, here goes nothing, guys. So today is April twenty third. Um, I'm from Portland, Oregon, by the way. So I'm a big Portland Trailblazers fan. A year ago today, something big happened in Portland Trailblazer history. Uh, Damian Lillard hit a series-clinching deep three-pointer uh, to send the Oklahoma City Thunder home, uh, packing, and uh, for the Blazers to move on to the second round. Um, that feat, a um, game-ending series ending shot has happened how many other times in NBA history? And we're going to give you a uh, multiple choice here. Okay. This and is bonus points. Can, <laughs> yeah. Bonus points. If you can, if you know who else has done it. Um, so yeah, we're just going to go a once B twice C three times or D four times. This is not including Dame, right? This is yes. Thank you, Brett. This is not including Dame shot last year. Yeah, I have my answer. All right, uh, let's let's let uh, Nick go last since he's our guest. Zach, okay, you can kick things off. I will go with two. I will name them after my the two I know. <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, wow. Were you Off-screen. over here googling this? Were you googling this up while, no. while you were off the screen? Yeah, off the screen. I don't think I don't think I'm correct, but I feel like I I feel like I might be. I don't know. Okay, Brett, what you got? I know two's wrong. Um, well, I think it's either happened four or five times total. I can think of three of them. I'm gonna say, I think it's four other times. I think it's five total. Okay, Brett's going with D four. Nick? I was going to say three other times, giving four total. Okay. And as, as a Portland guy, you know, I've got to go back to the, to the old Portland days of, of uh, what was it, Clifford Robinson wearing his headband? Oh, yeah. Uncle uh, it was legendary. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I know great. Lillard did it against Houston. Yeah. Okay, I'm not, I'm not counting that one either. Cool. Wait, you're not counting that one either? You can't. That's that's the other one. That's that's the whole reason. Because I know Dame did it another time. <laughs> I did it in the same playoffs. I know MJ did it, and then I think there was one other. That's why. That was, that well, was your your non knowledge actually helped you out, Brett, because you got it right with D four. Jeez, that was it. not <laughs> including Damon Lillard at all. I meant how many other players had done it. Oh, right? that would have been. Oh, okay. who was it? Okay. <laughs> Well, what were they? It's my first time doing this, and it obviously <laughs> Ralph Sampson did it back in 1986 for the Houston Rockets. Big-time center, huge guy. Michael Jordan he did lives, it. He lives up the road from me about 20 miles. Oh, wow. wow. Well, yeah, yeah. Goes, congratulate him for being yeah. rarefied air. <laughs> oh, you see, you see him around sometimes. at UVA. He comes to UVA basketball games. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Michael Jordan did it against the Cavs um, in 89. Kawhi Leonard did it just uh, last last year, yeah. Um, and John Stockton um, did it in 1997. So, 
those are your uh, four other players. And Damian Lillard is in – I don't even know what you want to call that, his other hemisphere there. Or, um, gosh, why I'm, I'm mixing up terms here. But um, it's okay. anyway, he's done it twice, the only player to have ever done it twice. So, Brett, good job. I'm going to give you that for sure. I mean, I was kind of wrong, but I guess I got the answer right. But, yeah, that's impressive. Yeah. Zach, uh, what uh, what else we got going on? Well, uh, you could check us out on uh, well the podcast as usual. You know this is going to be up on YouTube, so you get to see all the great quarantine beards going on. <laughs> and uh, hope you guys check out our site now, expanded to fromthestadium.com, where we've got all sports. We know there's a big NFL draft going on. And lastly, just wanted to thank you again, Nick, for coming on and making the time. I know even when quarantine things could definitely get busy. So, No, absolutely. And, you know, we're all trying to, to get through this together and hopefully we we're back before long and I can come back and we can talk about some current events of golf and, you know, and, and even delve into a little bit more of the business side of, of sponsorships sure. and, and that sort of thing. And, you know, you, I'll let you take some time and put together some questions, maybe some, some, uh, we can get some email inquiries from fans and uh for sure we business, business questions put together yeah, yeah absolutely 100 percent. we'd love to have you back on thanks so much nick and uh we'll speak to you soon all thanks, right nick. thank you yeah, thanks thank guys you. thank you for listening to from the back tees toward the hole and it's We hope you enjoyed today's show. For more information and updates, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at FromTheBackTees. I'm going to enjoy it for the rest of my life. See you next week. Be the ball, man. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.